0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and here we're on with Brian Katzner, our guest today, who will be talking about his new book just out in April called Stampede, Gold Fever and Disaster in the Klondike, published by Doubleday 2021. Thanks so much, Brian, for being with us here today.
1: Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: So here we are, uh, Brian Kastner's bio. He is a nonfiction writer, a former explosive ordnance disposal officer, and veteran of the Iraq War. His most recent book is Stampede, a new history of the 1897 Klondike Gold Rush. He's also the best-selling author of Disappointment River, All the Ways We Kill and Die, and the war memoir, memoir, The Long Walk, Which was adapted into an opera and named a New York Times editor's pick and Amazon Best Book of the Year. Brian's journalism and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Wired, Esquire, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, and on NPR, National Public Radio. He is the co editor of The Road Ahead, a collection of short stories featuring veteran writers, and has twice received grants from the Pulitzer Prize Center. Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting to cover the Ebola outbreak in Liberia in 2014, and to paddle the 1,200-mile Mackenzie River to the Arctic Ocean in 2016. Um, It's a great pleasure to have Brian here today. Uh, I've known him for a while, since we sat together once upon a time in English class in high school, uh, way back in Buffalo, New York, and so... Really happy, Brian. Thanks so much for joining me today for a conversation.
1: I am too. Um, I should say, like, I guess we should say full disclosure. We like haven't talked in twenty years, so this is this <laughs> that is, is like, true. This is like a reunion of of some ways. So I'm
0: I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. And so I, I want to um, talk about the content of the book and see, you know, just first if you could set up the mood for the story by reading from its opening. If you Absolutely. I'll just, um, I'll just read uh, three
1: or four pages here um, to, to start uh, chapter one, page one. Um, I do think if, you know, a best introduction to the book should be, should be the very beginning. So hopefully this works. So chapter one, 1895, I am not fit to live among civilized men. Robert Henderson. In those days, the men who panned for gold in the stream beds of the Yukon Valley would often work with a partner to avert lonesomeness or starvation or worse. But Robert Henderson was his own man, never could find another who matched his endurance for misery. And so when he slipped while crossing an icy creek, there was no one there to right him. And he fell, fell hard, and impaled himself upon the broken shards of a downed pine." Henderson had been working his way across a tree trunk that he had dropped for a makeshift bridge, axe in his right hand, bracing himself against a limb with his left. Below, the stream rushed as a snowmelt cataract. He swung and chopped away the branches that barred his path, but then the limb in his hand snapped and his feet came out from under him in a flash. Henderson tumbled toward the torrent of water, Then sudden blinding pain as the jagged stump of a branch speared the flesh of his calf and wrenched him to a halt midair. There he hung on a hook like an animal snared in a toothed foot trap dangling head down over the flooded stream. He was all alone. His axe was still in his hand. With a lurch, Henderson yanked himself up, the bloody stake straining against the tendons in his leg, and he swung hard with his axe, The blade bit and held, and Henderson pulled, and his chest met the trunk, and he clutched it in a bear hug. His leg was somehow free, but he dared not fall, and inch by inch he pulled himself to the bank. Henderson sat in the muddy slush on the creek edge. A bad wound, he thought. He lowered his mangled leg into the ice-cold water, and it numbed immediately. The creek went pink, then clear, and he pulled out the leg. He knew he could not walk. It was May, the days were long now, the sun warming, and yet snow still lay thick and the frozen Yukon River had not yet broken. He was stranded, cut off, hungry and lame. No one knew where he was, and even if they did, no one could reach him. Fifty hard miles to the nearest settlement, and the rapidly melting rivers were ready to rupture at any moment. He set camp and prepared for a long wait. He carried very little—flour, sugar, salt— a small bit of tea, rifle, pistol, shovel, and pan. His clothes were rags, patches of wool and furs and buckskin, and his hobnailed boots were held together with burlap sacks. His last resupply at the trading post at Ogilvy, the last time he had seen another man, was the year before. Henderson was blue-eyed, tanned, tall and lean like timber. He was nearly 40 years old, no longer a young man, and his face was sunken, overcooked, All the fat drained off. He wore a long mustache that drooped at the corners of his mouth and occasionally got caught in his teeth. Old-timers called him a born prospector. He had the gold fever. He must, to spend the winter cutting trail from the Indian River all the way up Australia Creek, melting snow to wash gravel in the darkness. And for nothing but a few colors, a few specks of gold, two cents to the pan. The muscles in the calf were torn, and soon the whole leg swelled and turned bright red, hot to the touch. Henderson's only relief was to crawl, on two hands and one knee, to the creek bank and dip the mangled leg in the icy bath. The never-setting sun was fierce off the snows, and Henderson could find no relief from the glare. He pulled his flat-brimmed felt hat down low to his eyes, but it made no difference. His vision went blurry and pained, and he knew snow blindness was coming on, so he rubbed his eyes with salt and water, hoping to stave off the worst of it. Like most prospectors, Henderson shaved in winter, as a beard would solidify into a hazardous mass of ice, but now he grew his whiskers to keep the mosquitoes off. It made little difference. Breeding in the shallows, the insects were ferocious, and Henderson took to wearing a hood of cheesecloth. Even so, the mosquitoes would smother themselves so thickly upon it that he had trouble breathing. Just before he fell crossing the creek, Henderson had shot a caribou and strung up the haunches in a nearby tree. Now he sawed through the forequarters and moved that section of raw meat to his tent, to a hole he dug to the permafrost. Then he dug a second hole in the ground, also inside the tent, but a little away from the first, and packed the sides with clay— He broke a few twigs into kindling and struck a sulfur match and made a small fire in the hole and the clay dried and hardened. Every day he cut off a piece of the caribou carcass and made a small fire and put both of them in the little clay oven and cooked the meat and this was all he ate for the day. The oven smoke clogged the air of the tent but that was okay. It kept off the mosquitoes. Wolves prowled along the edge of the camp every night. Henderson had no medicines, no poultice to draw out the bilious fluids in his leg, so he laid strips of bacon across the wound until they were heavy with pus. These have done duty, he thought, as he carefully pulled them off one by one and threw them outside the tent, where the wolves would leap on them, gobble them down, and then back off, temporarily satiated. Henderson tried to count the number of wolves outside his door. Their hideous howling continues both day and night, he rude. Trapped, he imagined hundreds of the animals, their calls echoing in the valley. Other beasts came to the tent as well, moose, caribou, and then the very embodiment of his fears. One day he heard grunts and huffs as a broad brown paw pushed through the flap. Henderson recoiled and pulled out his six-shooter and fired, and blood splattered across the canvas. The bear retreated into the forest, but Henderson lay uneasy, wary, watching the bear would come back. The only way to kill these Yukon bear was to shoot them through the spine. You could empty two pistols into a grizzly's chest and they'd fight on with a shredded heart. He'd seen it himself. Henderson listened and waited, vigilant, but the bear never returned. Robert Henderson lay in that tent among the wolves and mosquitoes for 22 days. He starved until his skin hung loose like ill-fitting clothes. Finally, desperately hungry and thinking his leg it lasted well enough to take his weight, he packed his gear and pushed on. The sickbed cost him 40 pounds, and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. That country in the upper Yukon Valley consists of a mix of rounded rolling hills veined with tight stream beds and wide U-shaped valleys dug by glaciers that left silty floors and moraines strewn along the shoulders. Henderson picked his way down among the conifers until he struck the Indian River at its icy spring melt flood. Henderson had no boat, so he shot a moose and skinned it and stretched the hide over a frame of sticks he lashed together, and with this he floated down the Indian. He didn't want to waste a minute of summer light, and he figured his leg was usable enough, so rather than return to Ogilvy for resupply, he instead paddled to a place called Quartz Creek in search of his next prospect. Henderson stashed his boat on the bank and packed his moose meat up the rocky shoulder of the creek bed. Gold followed quartz, so this could be a lucky spot. He found a place where the waters ran clear and dipped his pan in the gravel and pulled up a mixture of water and rock and dark soil. He shook, shook, shook the pan, and the water splashed over the side and ran down his fingers and forearms. The chunks of gravel scraped and scratched a racket, and he used the tips of his fingers to rake out the largest rocks so he could pick them by hand and toss them aside. Then he took more water in the pan and shook and swirled it so the sand and rock separated. Gold is twenty times heavier than water, and eight times heavier than the sediment with which it mingles, so it is only a matter of patience and skill to slowly clean a pan." As Henderson shook the pan, he gently tipped it away from himself so the gravel collected on the far side. With every shake, the gold invisibly worked its way down into the deepest crease. He carefully dipped the working edge of the pan in the water, and as he pulled it out, the top layer of lightest sand floated away. He dipped again, and a third time, and once more. Every dip, more bits of gravel slipped off, until all that remained were fine black grains. Pay dirt. Henderson poured off most of the water except for a small pool opposite the pay dirt. Then he swirled that slug of water around the bottom crease of the pan, like a marble ringing a bowl, and as it circled the well of the pan it swept off the sand, leaving behind the heavier grains of gold. The flecks emerged like buried treasure in the retreating surf on a beach. A flash, too. But nothing more, only colors, a disappointment, undaunted, Henderson hobbled further up the ridge and panned again and again and again and again
0: thanks thanks, Brian. I, I love that, and I think here's where I want to start with you as a war memoir as a war memoirist and as a journalist in search of The truth and in history, what drew you to this character and what drew you to the stories, let's say, of the Yukon and of the Klondike Gold Rush, all the way from Jack London, who's a character in your book, Forward?
1: Yeah, I I think that there there is a through line. It might sound, um, it might not be obvious at first, you know, having uh, you know, writing a war memoir and covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and what does that have to do with this? But I think that what animates my work and what ignites me as a writer is seeing an incongruity between our conventional understanding of things and the reality. And the reality is almost always more violent and bloody and ugly and miserable than our co- collective memory. And so I feel this need to like take down myths and I hate it when the truth is whitewashed. And I think, you know, this allergy that I have to glorification, I think it comes from my time in the military that I just, I I can't stand this glorification of war, um, having lived through it and written about it. Um, and, and I, I, guess I saw that in the Klondike as well, when I kind of stumbled upon the story, I you know, I'm just generally fascinated by the north, by the Arctic, um, by snow and cold and um, you know, outdoor stories. And I love reading, you know, books about Everest by Crack Hour and stories about Alaska by Crack Hour, I guess, you know. So I like these kind of books are are what I spend my time with. And so when I was looking for a similar story, the Klondike is such a myth in an American myth. Um and once I started to read about it and kind of dig into the archives and read the newspapers and, you know, read the oral histories and such, uh, it is not like smiling Mounties and, and, you know, happy good time girls and all this other stuff. It is a, you know, a, a violent, miserable place. And I, 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 I don't know. Then I feel this compulsion almost where I need to, I need <laughs> right. to dig in and say, no, here's what really happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm interested in, in asking you about the popular imagination of Alaska and with it, these limit experiences, because, you know, we have Jack London, there's a sort of shooting the elephant theme um, from Orwell, but all, all the books that were written about Alaska, did you did you read McPhee and Mishner and Krakauer? And how did you begin to, let's say, take down the mythology of the last front?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read a bunch of those, certainly McPhee um, and certainly Krakauer. Um, You know, Missioner's funny because that's technically fiction, although um, obviously it's mostly uh, it's a mix of facts and fiction. I try to avoid actually I, I try to specifically avoid some books like that that try to mix the two up when I'm first starting to write because not because there's not value in them, but because I don't want to accidentally take some fictional detail and incorporated as fact, like, you know, uh, unintentionally. So I tend to avoid, um, those kind of books when I'm really getting started. I mean, Pierre Burton's, um, wrote the most famous kind of definitive, uh, version of this story in 1957 or 58, I guess. And he's a mix of like, he's kind of like Canada's, um, uh, you know, McCullough, David McCullough, but he's also got, I don't know, he's got a really particular strong voice too. So I, I read that story and then made sure to never read it again, because I didn't, again, want to like let his voice and him, his impressions, because they're so strong, accidentally influence my book as well. But I, you know, I try, I usually start with the overview and then I try to dive into the very, very specifics and get to Almost as quickly as possible, you know, um, get to those those little details. You know, our mutual friend Mick Cochran at Canisius College, who's the director of the writing program there, he told me once that um, the trick is to find these little radioactive bits that just like you know excite you, or there's some detail that feels really new and fresh or surprising or crazy or Emotional or whatever else, and you find that radioactive bit, and then you note it, and then you find another one, and then you find another one, and if you can put enough radioactive bits together, that's called a book. (laughs) And and, and so that's what I'm—that's what I'm looking for. Is I'm looking for this stuff in the archives where I'm like, oh my, how did I not know that? How is that not in the story already? How is that not? um, you know, how, how is that just not common knowledge, I guess?
0: Yeah. And I know you get asked Brian a lot, you know, are you attempting to be an academic historian? I actually wanted to turn around the question and ask, you know, more academic historians why they don't write like Brian Kastner, um, (laughs) to be honest, but you did a lot of research for this book. I I'm just, you know, um, Astounded and maybe you could describe that. So you did go to San Francisco and, and Berkeley and spent a lot of time in Canada, from what I understand. What were the things that you read and you know, and of course you hiked the trails as well. So could you could you tell us what you did in order to gather the material for the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I did I'm not an academic historian. I rely on academic historians like Julie Cruikshank, who has collected the oral histories of the Clinkett people and Rod McLeod at the university of Alberta, who wrote the definitive biography of Sam Steele, who's the commander of the Northwest Mounted police. Like I am, I am indebted to academic historians like them. So I have those radioactive bits to find in mine, but I, I'm not writing fiction. I'm trying to write narrative. I'm trying to write with a strong narrative voice. I think that's what I bring to it, but purely within a fact-checked, unembellished, you know, is every word's got to be right, you know, model. So, I mean, fortunately in Um, You know, in our day and age, I don't actually have to travel to many of the archives. Some I do. Sometimes archives come to you. Sometimes I I have people that I can, you know, at the Bancroft Library. And um, so, I mean, I'm diving into a lot of those major collections. The major ones are... Um, at the Bancroft, at the University of Alberta, the Bruce Peel Special Collection there, um, at uh, the Yukon Archives for the Yukon Territory, all the Alaskan state archives, especially the D- University of Washington has the definitive photographs. And then the Library of Congress has, of course, digitized newspapers from the era. So I'm not just reading Seattle Post Intelligence, or I'm trying to read also some local Newspapers, because one of the you know I never answer this question, but one of the things I was trying to look into is how many people died in the gold rush, and i don 't think anybody knows the answer, and what it would take is somebody to sit down and really read the death notices from all the local newspapers in the country because mm-hmm. people died anonymously on the trail, but then you would read like the Lima, Ohio. Whatever uh, local paper, and they would say, you know, six people die, six people drowned this week in the Klondike from Lima, and, and here's who it was, and that's the only record of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm combining all of that and, and trying to find those details to tell the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something like a necrology or, or like a collection of obituaries. That's a really great point. Um, could you talk about? what qualities your stampeders have in common. So you begin with Henderson, who's a prospector from Nova Scotia, and you have Jack London, who is a character in the book with you know, um, also looking to escape from the humdrum life. Who who are these people? Are they somehow emblematic of American culture, or is it just the 1890s, or is it just Blondheim? Um Introduce some of
1: yeah, that's a good question. So I think the um, one of the American myths that maybe is right, because it's how people talked about it at the time, was that Alaska and the Yukon and the Klondike were the last West. It was the last gasp of the Western frontier, the Old West, the Um, you know, the tombstone and Cripple Creek and all of these, you know, cowboys and all of that kind of stuff. Alaska was the very last version of it. And people said it at the time and people that went to Alaska say in the mid 1890s as prospectors are the kind of people that would have gone to a silver boomtown in Colorado you know, twenty years before. But all of those places in Colorado and Nevada and et cetera, had mostly been picked over. And the only, you know, the last place where you could really prospect in places that hadn't already been claimed significantly and find a major find was Alaska. So so that was the initial prospectors and before the discovery of gold, uh, in the Klondike in 1896, you know, there were about a thousand white men or so almost exclusively men, um, you know, less than 5% were women up there and, and mostly not wives. I mean, nobody's homesteading in that part of the world, right. Just because of the climate. So it is mostly sex workers, who are, who are up there. Um, some that are working in laundry, but, um, or other kind of homemaking services, but really very, very few. So it's, it's by far mostly men. Um, and, and so it's, it is kind of that like prospector class, but then the people who went on the stampede, once the news got out in 1897, it was about a hundred thousand people that went on on that stampede, and they, okay. you know, that's the combined population of like Seattle and Los Angeles at the time. So mm-hmm. it's it's an enormous number of people, and it's from all over Canada and the United States, and even from Europe and Latin America a little bit. Um, but it is people who are, you know, are, like you say, they're escaping an economic depression, the panic of 1893. They're escaping extremely low wages, but they, they're not outdoors people. You know, they are, they're urbanites, they have streetcars, and they have electricity, and they have, you know, tenement high rises. And they are not like, uh, they do not have the skills to be in the wilderness. And so they are like, they're trying out when they put on their gold mining outfits, it's like a costume and they don't mm-hmm. know how to hitch horses. They don't know how to use their firearms. Uh, they don't know how to do what they're going to do. Um, but they, they move in mass and they, um, yeah, they're just like, like. I mean, that's part of, I think that's an essential part of the story is that they're extremely unprepared. And I guess as a class, it's not the very, very rich, although some do for glory, and it's not the very, very poor. You need to have just enough money, like $1,000, so you can yeah. buy, you know, the flour and pan right. and that, other that, kind of stuff. The-
0: it's the it's the Oregon Trail moment, right? You sort of need you know you need to plan, but of course you have no idea who's going to die of dysentery along the way,
1: <laughs> right? And so there were, uh, immediately there were all these lists in the newspaper. Here's the essential things you need, you know, to go to the Klondike. Um, I mean, one newspaper I think in San Francisco said that it was police officers and streetcar drivers who were the most susceptible to what they called clondicitis, which was like a foggy disease of the mind that made you only think about gold in the climate?
0: (laughs) Well, that's my next question, um, Brian, because I know you've you've actually got that word. um, And it's, uh, I think, from the San Francisco Chronicle, too, or at least from a passage where a journalist describes the country going mad. And, And I wonder if there's a pathology to this. So obviously, you know, people who are adventurers and and hoping to get rich quick um, at the tail end of the Gilded Age and the turn toward the Progressive Age. So, I mean, who catches this disease and why and who are they?
1: Yeah, I think I think the overall um, the overall profile, I think, as I say in the book, is people who felt they deserved more. People who felt like they were left out of, like you say, the Gilded Age, that they, um, you know, the standard wage was 10 cents an hour, which would equate to about $3 an hour now. And whether you were like Jack London, if you were putting, you know, string on a bobbin or putting pickles in a jar or shoveling coal, which is the jobs that he had when he was a teenager, whether you were doing that or, most other factory work back east, uh, you were making ten cents an hour, and you were obviously, you know, uh, not getting ahead on that. But you were seeing the Vanderbilts and Carnegies and, and all of those growing extremely rich, and it was there's really a class divide of like I, um, you know, I. Th- I mean, it caught in a fundamentally unfair system. My mortgage is underwater. The banks are failing. This was the time of Coxie's army and like people marching on Washington to demand better wages, whatever else. And there were, I mean, labor was growing. There were uh, horrible, violent strikes in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. And that's Mm -hmm. when the news suddenly appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle and other places. Like there is not just gold in the Klondike, but there is $70 million in plain sight, like Easter eggs on the ground. Mm -hmm. And if you just Mm -hmm. get up there, you can like pick it all up. And I think there's part of this too. I mean, two other things about being gold, like really specifically, one is because the world was on the gold standard, in some ways, new wealth was really not created unless you dug it out of the ground. And and so this mining was really required for economic growth in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing was this was the whole time, like you say, of the progressive era of gold stamp, like a gold back dollars and silver back dollars, and William Jennings Bryan, the whole cross of gold speech. And I won't get into all the economics of that. Um, you know, everybody will switch off the podcast. But the basic idea was, <laughs> you know, like there was Go there was a, <laughs> there was an economic system for the rich. Gold backed dollars, and there was an economic system for the poor, silver backed dollars. And this was a major political issue. And so it wasn't just we can get rich in the Klondike, it's that this gold, which is reserved for the richest, is available for me. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, that's why, I mean, just the number of people that went in such a short period of time is really extraordinary.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to ask about the political dimension of this as well, because you've got the the famous Chilkoot Pass and the U.S.-Canada border in the late 1890s. But, you know, I'm really curious in how you begin to include First Nation voices. And you have some really interesting characters, George Carmack and and Kate, as she's called Carmack, um, and some others. So, you know, what are the political dimensions of this, let's say? Um, at this Klondike rush moment where people are, are venturing the American route or, or the Canadian route. Of. Yeah, I mean there, there's a few there's a few
1: things going on there. So first when it comes to the border, I mean the border had been surveyed, but really nobody paid attention to it. And the Klondike River itself starts in Canada and then goes into the United States. And so depending on where you were on the river you were in the US or Canada, Um, Alaska wasn't really, I mean, it was a military district. It wasn't even a territory. And so it didn't have really political representation. There were a few U S marshals to keep the peace, but extremely few, uh, there were also extremely few, um, Northwest mounted police up there. These are not, you know, friendly Mounties. These are, you know, really, um, a militarized police that had, you know, fought, First Nations, um, you know, across the Canadian Great Plains. And so there's very little law and order and then nobody pays attention to the border. And the prospectors themselves are a mix of Canadians and Americans and Europeans, right? So they really had their own legal system that they called miners' meetings, which was like, a, you know, a, a combination of it was a kangaroo court of judge and jury and executioner, essentially, uh, where they settled disputes. Um, but then, obviously, there's indigenous people that had lived up there for thousands and thousands of years, the uh, the Tagish right. and the Tlingit. And their land is certainly – I mean, so there's a whole colonial aspect to this where their land is being taken. I mean, George Carmack is an American. He is a former Marine who deserts. Uh, he goes up there to be a prospector. Um, but he, you know, he takes people call, oh, there's a couple racial epithets that people use, which I won't repeat, uh, that I say in the book, but he was known as an Indian lover. Like he had, um, he had an indigenous woman as a wife and, and so he was kind of like shunned by white people. There was this, there was definitely, it won't surprise you to hear that there was the second class citizenry of the indigenous people mm-hmm. up there
0: and they um, were his, his sorry his wife was tagish right wasn't it um, yes well and, actually and he actually re- renamed her because he couldn't pronounce her name yeah her name was Shaw
1: Claude he couldn't say that and so he renamed her Kate um and the same thing with his daughter who he renamed Graphy Grace um, that he and Kate had together and i mean she was a daughter of chiefs and she married George her her father arranged it Um, Or or at least the nation arranged it. Um, So that way they thought George Carmack was a leader of white men and that this would like bridge the cultures. Like they did a very culturally appropriate thing. And it turned out George Carmack was, you know, a deadbeat prospector, the same as most of them. Right. Mm -hmm. It was just like there was a real cultural um, clash there. And the indigenous people were packers and um, sometimes were employed, but were also... You know, honestly, lynched, and um, you know, obviously, at a completely different set of, um, you know, there's a different criminal system, if you even want to call it that, for for the indigenous people up there.
0: Mm -hmm. And what remains of law and order in the Yukon and in places like Dawson City or other boom towns? I, I mean, I love how you tell the story about um, the prospectors and the miners' code. After all, in, in this um, environment of viciousness and violence, there seem to be rules, at least there are a few rules, and I don't know how many of them get violated, but um, talk a little bit about that in the boom towns. How, you know, how is this sort of government set up, if there was one at all? Yeah, I thought I thought this was
1: a particularly interesting aspect of it. So this miners code in the miners meetings where the code was enforced, the code really, you know, this is by white men for white men and with white white men's interests. So the number one thing is, you know, you don't kill each other. There's no duels. There's you know, they try to regulate violence with between themselves. But then um, there's also certain crimes which are punishable by banishment, which usually means death. And one of those, the biggest one is stealing, especially stealing food, because if you steal somebody else's food, that's essentially like killing that person. So that so that was really well enforced. Um, but but, you know, and, and there was a certain amount of peace that that maintained. And actually, this is one of those myths that I felt like I needed to detonate, which was how, quote, safe the Klondike was in the way that they measured how safe it was, was the You know, you could fall asleep at the saloon with your gold poke, you know, a little bag of gold dust, like on the bar. And when you woke up, it would still be there. People didn't steal from each other. Um, And there's even been like recent academic research on this that tries to compare like murder rates between various towns to say, oh, well, see, like it actually wasn't any worse (laughs) on the Canadian frontier. But that's like reported crimes, which is its own issue. And it's crimes between white men, and what it doesn't account for is violence against the women that were up there, violence against the indigenous people that were up there.
0: Yeah, and 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 that, and that you know the women that you reconstruct, Brian. And that was another question I really wanted to ask you. You have Anna DeCroff and Belinda Mulrooney, um, who, if I remember correctly, make it to Dawson City. Um, which at the end of the rush becomes depopulated. But you know, how then do you draw in three dimensions the women characters in your book as well? Because I would imagine you had to make as a writer some very strategic choices based on sources, you know, who you could draw in, in two versus three dimensions. So I'm particularly interested in why you included them and how you included
1: Yeah, this was, I mean, like, as you say, how do you decide who to write about in a book like this, where you're really, my goal is narrative and bringing the people to life, but also doing it in a nonfiction way. And the only way to do that is people that you have lots of material on, that you have lots of oral histories or lots of um, their own journals or whatever else. And this was really the struggle with indigenous people and the women, uh, because they most left very little. And so for for the First Nations, it was the oral histories um, in a lot of cases. And then with, I mean, there were some women who are famous in the Dawson City, like Diamond Tooth Gertie, um, who just didn't leave a record. And so I was hoping she could be one of the main characters and couldn't. Um, meanwhile, Anna de Graff, who you mentioned, I mean, she wrote a memoir from her journals, uh, which was Published by a very small press by her great great uh, great great or just great grandson, Um, and you know, so there was a lot of material there where I could bring her to life. And so, and and I personally think she's a fascinating character. She was in her late fifties when she went on the stampede. She wasn't looking for gold; she was looking for her son who was missing. And but she ends up befriending. Uh, a lot of the sex workers in Dawson City and the the dancers uh, and the performers because she's a seamstress and she makes their dresses, and so I was able to tell the story of a lot of different kinds of people through her eyes because because she was there. So yeah, I mean to answer your question directly, it is it's really a matter of sources. What's in the newspapers? What's in the oral histories? Uh, Belinda Mulrooney gave an oral history that. Was supposed to become a book and never did. Um, and so I was able, to, I mean, there's been bio- great biographies of Belinda Mulrooney written, but I could go back to like her original words and, you know, to be able to say that high standard of, you know, Mulrooney thought this at this time. You know, my standard for thought is she said she thought it at that time. Right. And the only way you have that is if she says that somewhere in a letter or in the oral history or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that was a question about, for me, that I had about reconstruction, because you are doing, you know, almost like a tour of duty, I would describe it. it I, we could use war analogies, I suppose, but you have a, a chronological order to the narrative in 10 chapters there, you start in the middle, but you obviously end with the 1890s. And then you kind of break the wall toward the end. And that's the big reveal from the present back to past. So the question I wanted to ask you, Brian, is is really about your act of reconstruction and historical reconstruction. So did you have a clear agenda or motive when you started with this project? Um, Did you know how long it was going to take? Was it modeled on your earlier McKenzie project, Disappointment River? Um, I guess this is the larger question about reconstruction than ultimately your powers of observation in writing the story.
1: Yeah, I, um, I appreciate you asking that. I mean, this is something that I, I think as a writer you spend a lot of time thinking about. But when you're talking about your book, you don't. So I appreciate you asking. I mean, I started, because I'm not a historian, I started with the voice and I and what I wanted the book to sound like, and that I wanted, The book to really be relentless narrative, and I wanted the story to stay within itself. And exactly like you said, I um, wanted—I didn't want to break the fourth wall until in an afterward, I am writing from 2021 perspective, and I say, okay, here's here's where everybody ended up, and here's you know some thoughts on how to think about this kind of migration of people. But within the ten chapters. I wanted it to be completely within itself, and um, and that included, you know, word choice and the words that I tried to use only vocabulary present at the time. Like for example, there's a gangster named Soapy Smith.
0: It's a great character. Yeah,
1: he's he's an. I mean, he's one of those like you couldn't make him up. Like you yeah. know, um, he has his own
0: militia. Eventually, That's <laughs> a does. mobster,
1: right? He does. He makes he makes himself a captain and forms a militia to go fight the spanish-american war in cuba all the way from alaska right um but what he was doing to control the town of skagway is really racketeering but the word racketeering didn't exist in the 1890s and so i don't use it in the book right so like like in previous books you know i'm starting with You know, I'm starting with an idea of, like, what's going to be most important in that book. And so, like, The Long Walk, which was my first one, The War Memoir, I was always trying to get the feeling right. Like, that's what I deferred to, to is what what did it feel like to take apart bombs in Iraq, and what did it feel like to come home, and always use that as the flagpole, what get the feeling right. And in Disappointment River, my book about Alexander McKenzie and the McKenzie River— I mean, there I started with a model. I started with David Grand's Lost City of Z, which is about Percy Fawcett exploring the Amazon. And I kind of, I substituted the Amazon for, you know, Northern Canada in the Arctic wilderness. And I substituted uh, Fawcett for Mackenzie. And, you know, I started, I knew I wanted to write an intertwined story of both my trip with Mackenzie and Mackenzie's trip and like, and weave those two together. Um this I knew I wanted to start with the voice and get and, and have it I'm trying to demythologize the story, but I'm trying to do that in actually a somewhat in some cases like with myth-like language, except I'm not telling a fairy tale. I, I'm hopefully telling, you know, a much more, like I said, bloody and um real and racist and sexist, you know, but but ultimately much more true um, you know, story here.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess I'd like to ask, um, in the turn out of the 1890s now, whether it's to the world of muckraking journalism, um, Upton Sinclair or Ida Tarbell or something like that, or into the present, how do you shift the style eventually out of the romantic mode or out of the romantic myth? That so many Americans in popular memory, and Canadians too, you know, like uh, Calgary's football team is still called the Stampede after all, right? Right, but, I mean, right. H- how, how do you get out of that foundation myth, which which still exists despite thousands of academic monographs produced to the contrary about Bondi brush and, and Yukon? So, yeah,
1: I mean, I I would hope um, within the story itself, within the ten chapters, that the reader says, "Oh, this reads romantic, like you say," but wait a second, it's romantic language and tone, but I'm reading about a failed hanging of Indigenous people, and like the you know in the like normally uh, a hanging becomes a crime statistic and it's just whitewashed. But here I'm writing about like the absolutely gruesome way that people were truly hanged. Um, something doesn't feel right here, and I'm hoping the reader notices that and like is learning something. But then, in the afterward, you know, initially I resisted um, writing an afterward. I just wanted the ten chapters to exist on their own, and this is why everybody needs an editor because my editor <laughs> Jerry Howard very smartly said, "No, you can't just leave us there.
0: I you need to I tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, you need <laughs> yeah. to
1: tell us what this all means." And, and so I went through a bit of a like roll call. Here's how everybody ended up, you know, here's where the main characters, you know, how they all ended their life. Um, and, and when they died and some people lived into the 1960s and then also then tried to like put this whole stampede in context, like in a, how, I think the two main questions are for a modern reader in 2021, um, how did they, how did everybody get duped into doing this? It's like a Ponzi scheme, but I I do Mm -hmm. think it is like Bernie Madoff or QAnon conspiracies or, or, you know, like we are still taken in by these things. Large numbers of people are, and it turns out a hundred thousand people were so taken in by the idea that gold was just laying out in plain sight that they were willing to take this trip. Um, But at the same time, I guess then to now contradict myself, I think that there's another I think that there's another question which relate which relates to maybe we shouldn't be so hard on them that they were all t- you know taken in because there are still millions and millions of people whether they're mm-hmm. fleeing Latin America up to the United States whether they're fleeing sub-Saharan Africa to Europe that are essentially making the same trip for the same reason which is I'm so desperate at home I am willing to brave all of these hardships climate and gangsters and violence and sexual violence I'm willing to brave all of that for a chance at a better life and so it is there is something fundamentally human about yeah. going on this kind of migration
0: yeah that's that's really interesting Brian I think I think of that after living over 10 years in Colorado and spending some time hiking in the mountains and running up in Leadville Colorado one of my favorite places I I look at those old silver mines and I think, well, what motivated people to come here? This is a disaster. They, they couldn't have been thinking rationally and you know and many of them ended up dying very, very young without anything to show for it in destitution. So I, I really appreciate actually how you at the end in the afterworth would cover people like Skookum Jim. Um, the Trust Fund, the friendship Center, and maybe you could say a little bit about the kind of afterlives of these people or, or after memories. Um, what, what becomes of them and what becomes of the characters and their descendants? Yeah. So I would just say to start
1: overall, people were feel, fleeing economic hardship, but it was completely recreated in Dawson City. And so about 100,000 people, like I said, went on the rush about a third or maybe 40% actually made it to Dawson. Out of those two thirds that didn't, many of them turned back, um, but also many of them died. And we have no idea how many died. It could be tens of thousands of people that died. Um, And then out of that very small fragment, the third that made it to Dawson city, um, only about 1% got rich or anything called rich. So the whole 99%, 1% was completely recreated. And that was the afterlife for most people, Jack London, um, we've mentioned briefly. You know, he found five dollars in gold, and was <laughs> and was just
0: happy that but, he like lived right. But wrote a, wrote a lot of books. Mind wrote, the mind the region for stories, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Sat at the bar in Dawson City and listened to the old timers, and then wrote books about it. Um, but but that was you know the writing was not the typical experience, but finding five dollars in gold certainly was. Yeah. Um, I mean, so some there are like truly incredible success stories. Clarence and Ethelberry, which were two of the very few husband and wife teams up there, where she would, you know, they both like they split the chores and she was both the accountant but also the, you know, making food for all of the their crew and everything else. Because they could work together, they were extremely efficient and successful. Were one of the richest to come out, invested their money well, ended up buying oil fields in Southern California, and mm-hmm. and the Los Angeles Angels baseball team at I one didn't point. Know that. I really yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, and then Barry Petroleum in like 2013 sold for
0: 4.3 billion dollars. Oh my goodness! It's like modern fracking um, billionaires, right? Yeah, I didn't they, know that.
1: They turned gold into gold mines, into oil fields, into this incredible payday, you know, right? So that is, yeah. in some ways, that's the American dream, right? But that, that happened to very, very few people. Most, um, most didn't. I mean, Belinda Mulrooney, I think, is, you know, one of, again, she was the richest woman in Dawson City at the time. She owned a number of hotels. Um, she married a count. She like she had this, you know, boomtown life uh, and then ends up losing all the money in the crash, uh, moves to Washington, helps build minesweepers at the docks in Seattle during World War II, and dies in the 1960s in the age 90 something. Um, and her death certificate lists her her occupation as housewife. You know, so like there's some people that just have like this really tragic um, and where, you know, she wasn't really recognized for who she was uh, at the time. But then, you know, a lot of there's been billions and billions of dollars of gold that have come out of that area. Very little of it has um, has benefited the indigenous people. And so to get back to your question kind of more directly, you know, Skookum Jim, who was Kate Carmack's brother and. Uh, you know, was really instrumental to the discovery. I won't do spoilers here, but, but Skookum Jim was instrumental. He largely kept his money and put it into a trust after his death. And that money uh, now funds the Skookum Jim Friendship Center in Whitehorse, which is the capital of Yukon territory and provides like, you know, prenatal counseling and legal advice and all sorts of services uh, to people in in Whitehorse, so mm-hmm. I mean there, that's some small benefit um, that has lasted. It's probably the most laudable, commendable yeah. um, benefit. A lot of it was, you know, um, otherwise uh, people either left poor, and then you had very very few Clarence and Ethelberries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in in the First Nations memory. Of this too. And and I wonder if you do travel to the Yukon and again, and, and give readings and talk to people that you talk to, um, how the book would be received. That would be such an interesting question in the Yukon. Um, and that leads me to my last and final question, Brian, since we're running out of time, unfortunately, I wanted to ask if you might suggest to our audience other other books, either history or disaster or um, any sort of American mythology that you might have in mind?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, from a, um, we've already talked about some of the history, like the specific uh, historians that have written on this, uh, Julie Cruikshank and Rod McLeod and Dem Vaness and such, um, who have done such good work. So I, I won't recommend those or I already have, but I, you know, I for tone and for voice, I read a lot of fiction and so I would kind of recommend two sets of books. One is when it comes to, um, I read a lot of uh, rural noir, uh, okay. is maybe one way that it's called. So this is like Donald Ray Pollock's uh, Knock 'em Stiff, which is about Ohio. Uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell, who wrote uh, Mothers Tell Your Daughters, a set of short stories. Like, really, just the voice in those books are incredible. And, and tell, you know, much more of the stories of the kind of people that went on would go on this kind of rush. And then for Westerns, I would I would also recommend a couple, um, because, again, this this was seen even at the time as like the last great Western um, adventure or exodus uh, Two that I would recommend are The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, which was turned into a movie which I think was less successful. But the book itself is incredible. Uh, And then The Sun by Philip Meyer, which might be, you know, the best Western written in the last, I don't know how many decades. Um, I mean, I'm currently reading Lonesome Dove, which is uh, also an incredible Western, but not the, you know, not my kind of voice. It's a, it's an omniscient narrator, which is, I try to write from more of a limited narrator Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, So I didn't steal the voice, but you can't beat the writing in Lonesome Dove.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Brian. I'm a great fan of Myers' American Rust. That, that's one of my sort of early books that I read of coming out of the rust belt and thinking about my own escape from, from Buffalo. Right, <laughs> back, right. back, to, back to that. I don't think I'm ever going back. But um, it was such a joy to catch up with you in in this fashion, talking about your book. I want to congratulate you on the latest. So um, Brian Kastner, my guest here on New Books Network and New Books and Literature, is the author of a book just out. It is called Stampede, Gold Fever and Disaster in the Klondike. Go find it today. It is, it's published by Doubleday 2021. Thanks a lot, Brian, for being here today.
1: Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.